Good evening, everyone. Thank you for spending your Tuesday evening here with me, learning about the battle and campaign for Bristow Station. Before we had dinner, I had this PowerPoint up, and some people saw my subtitle, Lee's Last Offensive. And so that brought some questions up. Wasn't Lee having an offensive in 1864 when his corps under Jubal Early was in the Shenandoah Valley? Or the Battle of Fort Stedman in March of 1865? You can say that those are partial offensives, but the Bristow Station campaign in October of 1863 is the last campaign in which Lee will be with his army on the offensive. After that, during the Overland Campaign, during Petersburg, he will be with his army reacting to the Union Army. So October 1863 really is Lee's last offensive at the entire Civil War. So tonight we'll be talking about this. I have a better image uh, closer up. So this is more or less a 10-day a campaign, which will see the armies go from the Madison Courthouse area up towards Fairfax County and then back towards Madison County and Culpeper. There's no large battles that are the result of these marches and maneuvers. But the entire Bristow Station campaign, to give you a sense of comparison, produces the same amount of casualties as First Manassas, as Pea Ridge, or Sherman's North Carolina campaign. So it's not as large as Gettysburg or Antietam, but by no means is it a small, bloodless affair. But before we start, though, I just want to put Bristow Station in context. Bristow Station is a railroad stop on the Orange and Alexandria Railroad which today is part of the VRE, the Virginia Railway Express. So if you take Broad Run Station, that's very close to the original 1860s Bristow Station. The Civil War really impacts Bristow Station pretty heavily. You have tens of thousands of soldiers going through the area from 1861 to 1865. And the first soldiers who come through the area are in 1861, just immediately after First Manassas, when the Confederates are going to establish Camp Jones. And you have soldiers from Tennessee, Virginia, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina stationed there in attempts to try and prevent diseases from going throughout the army. That fails. And so you have many soldiers succumbing of disease and cemeteries are going to be established for those dying soldiers. The Confederates are going to be in the area until about March of 1862 when they're going to be immediately followed by Union soldiers. And actually, around this time in 1862, so early April 1862, it's hard to imagine this when it's about 90 degrees out, but the soldiers at Bristow Station encounter a snowstorm. They get snowed in for about seven days, and they have no tents, so they're trying to make ad hoc shelters. Part of those Union soldiers are elements of Wisconsin and Indiana regiments, later to be known as the Iron Brigade. And because they're snowed in, they're trying to pass the time away. So one soldier starts to imitate a frog. Very quickly, one or two take it up. And so within a few minutes, you have a few thousand federal soldiers croaking like frogs in the middle of a snowstorm at Bristow Station. Then they change to barnyard animals. So you have mooing and neighing and <laughs> bleeding like sheep. Fortunately for those soldiers, the snow melts, and they're going to go down to Fredericksburg. The war is going to return to Bristow Station a few months later on August 27, 1862, part of the Second Manassas Campaign. So there is going to be a small but bloody battle at Bristow Station. Part of Ewell's Division of Confederate Infantry will be fighting against Joe Hooker's Division of uh, the Third Corps from the Army of the Potomac. 
It's mainly fighting between a couple of Louisiana Tiger regiments in the Excelsior Brigade and the 2nd New Jersey Brigade. After uh, the war shifts up further north, and then when they return down to Virginia, the Orange and Alexandria Railroad will be repaired and then garrisoned by Union soldiers. Then we have the, the largest event that takes place in the area in, during the war, the Battle of Bristow Station, October 14th, 1863. And then finally, we have more soldiers returning, this time federal soldiers, and it's gonna be a winter encampment from the Pennsylvania Reserve Corps troops. So that gives you context, and also uh, just the challenge of researching the Battle of Bristow Station, uh, because unlike Gettysburg, in which you have the armies there for maybe four days at most, if you have tens of thousands of soldiers from 1861 to 1865, they're changing the landscape every time they go through the area. So an account in 1862, it talks about fences and, and trees, Unfortunately, it just doesn't give a good impression of 1863 after soldiers have burned those fences and cut down those trees. So that gives Bristow Station in context. And now before we can go into the campaign to give the campaign context, what's happening in the Union after uh, Gettysburg and after Vicksburg? So today, we view those two campaigns as the turning point of the American Civil War. And there's a lot of reasons that we believe that today. But in 1863, the war is still somewhat in doubt, especially in the North, which is really highlighted just a few weeks later in New York City with the draft riots. So for a sizable portion of the Union population, the war is still fairly unpopular. And so you have open rebellion in the streets of Manhattan, but also you have anti-war elections more or less going to be happening in, in 1863. So 1862 is congressional elections, 1864 is going to be a presidential election, but in 1863, in the fall, there are state elections. And the governor's mansions of the two most populated states in the north, New York and Ohio, are up for grabs. And there's two peace Democrats who are actually running on the platform that the war is failing and that the Lincoln administration should allow the South to secede and then try to come up with a diplomatic solution later. Now, if they win, that doesn't mean the war is going to end immediately, but it's really gonna hamper the Lincoln administration in 1864. So there is a chance that the Confederacy can somewhat regain some of that initiative that was lost in 1863 at Gettysburg and at Vicksburg. So to give you the political context, now the war shifts really for the only time to the West. So after Gettysburg, both the Army of Northern Virginia, the Confederate Army, and the Army of the Potomac, the Union Army, are more or less going to be licking their wounds from August and September. So the initiative is going to be shifted out to Tennessee and Georgia. And eventually, you're going to have two divisions under James Longstreet detached from Lee's army, sent on a very circular route through the Carolinas and Georgia, and they're going to take part in the Battle of Chickamauga in North Georgia which produces a, quote, Bull Run-esque victory for the South. And now the Lincoln administration somewhat frets about this, and so they start to reinforce the Chattanooga, Tennessee area with reinforcements throughout the South, including two corps from the Army of the Potomac. The 11th and the 12th Corps will be detached from Meade's army in late September, early October 1863, and sent out to Tennessee. And so this is going to start the Bristow Station campaign. Again, the Army of Northern Virginia is in the Orange Medicine area, and the Army of the Potomac is going to be in the Fauquier-Warrenton area. 
And the reason that this campaign starts is Lee realizes that even though his army has been reduced with those two divisions being sent out west, he now has an army numbering about 45,000 soldiers. He realizes his opponent is also reduced in strength. And so what he's going to try and do is try to repeat the second Manassas campaign. So part of his army is going to try and keep the intention of the federal army, while the other half is going to try to march to the west and eventually, if luck holds out, get between the Army of the Potomac and Washington, D.C. Have the Army of the Potomac fight the Army of Northern Virginia on the Confederates' terms. That's the plan. So Lee tries to just take the initiative away from the Union Army. But another reason probably that he's going to initiate this campaign is ever since those two divisions of his army is sent out to Tennessee, he's pestering Jefferson Davis to return them back to the Army of Northern Virginia. If his army is just camping in, in central Virginia, those calls of returning those two divisions really aren't going to be dealt with uh, a sense of urgency. But if his army's on campaign, then he's hopefully, in Lee's mind, going to get those two divisions, hopefully a little bit sooner than if he's just encamping in the area. And so this is going to uh, start on October 9th, 1863. And so what's going to happen is when the scouts and the cavalry reports the Union Army come back to George Meade, the commander of the Army of the Potomac, that Lee is on the move, Meade decides He's going to take a very cautious approach. He's going to retreat his army to the north side of the Rappahannock River, similar to what John Pope did in 1862, and have the Confederates potentially try to assault them directly across the river. The north bank of the Rappahannock River is higher than the southern bank. And then also by holding Rappahannock Station, his logistical support along the Orange and Alexandria Railroad is going to be secure. So he's going to order his corps back north of the Rappahannock River, uh, and he's going to have this no man's land more or less stationed with elements of his cavalry corps. And he's going to recall his divisions back, and this is going to cause the fourth battle of Brandy Station. And so what's going to happen is Kilpatrick's division, including uh, a guy named Armstrong Custer, is around Brandy Station, and they're retreating back along the Orange and Alexandria Railroad to the main Union Army. During this time, they are going to be harassed by half of Stuart's cavalry division, while the other half under Fitz Lee are going to try and block their escape route. It's a very close thing, but eventually the Federals are able to keep that retreat open, and so they're going to fall back along with the main Union Army north of the Rappahannock River. Now, just like John Pope in 1862, Meade has a decision to make. Hold the position, allow Lee to attack him, or try to take the initiative and start a battle. And so on August 22nd, 1862, John Pope wants to cross the Rappahannock River and attack Lee's army. Rising waters prevents him from doing that. But in 1863, the river is low enough that Meade can recross and hopefully attack the Confederate army. So he allows portions of his army to get south of the Rappahannock River. Unfortunately, he's going to hear reports that the Confederate infantry is now marching along to his right, to the west and to the north to get between him and Washington, D.C. So Meade realizes now that this is going to be a race back up to Northern Virginia. He's going to forget 
all pretenses of attacking Lee's army, and now his goal is to retreat up the Orange and Alexandria Railroad and get to the fortifications at Centerville first. So Meade's goal is to get to Centerville and allow Lee to attack him there. So the rest of the campaign is going to turn into a foot race of who can get to Northern Virginia first. And so because speed is so important during this time period now, uh, Meade is going to make the decision to split his army up to different routes. So the majority are going to be marching up the Orange and Alexandria Railroad itself, uh, but he's also going to detach two corps, and they're going to march further to the west. They're going to go through a place called Auburn, then up through Greenwich, and then back towards the railroad at Bristow Station, and then march up towards Centerville in Fairfax County. Unfortunately for Meade, he doesn't particularly know where the Confederate Army is now around the Warrington area uh, because he's afraid that Lee's going to try and repeat 2nd Manassas. And so he's going to detach a division of cavalry again under Kilpatrick along what is now Route 29, the Warrington Turnpike, to protect the Haymarket area where Stonewall Jackson came in in 1862. While another division under Buford is going to be protecting the wagon train. So there really isn't going to be any federal forces between the 2nd and 3rd Corps and the Confederate infantry. However, they don't have to worry too much because, again, trying to repeat 1862, Stuart's going to take a raid down to Catlett. And a year before, he famously captured John Pope's wagon train. Trying to repeat those actions, he gets to Catlett. He sees elements of the Union Army retreating up the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. And Stuart makes the decision to return to Warrington, where Lee has his headquarters, to report this in person. Unfortunately, during this time period of him leaving the Warrington area, going to Catlett, and coming back, you have two Federal Corps now blocking his route to Lee's army. And Stuart decides to take most of the Confederate cavalry with him. And this is going to be important later on. So on October 13, 1863, most of Lee's army is encamped in the St. Stephen's Trench area between, and Auburn. And they're going to try and open up the road through Auburn back up to Warrington. Unfortunately for the Confederates, they're going to see the lead elements of the Third Corps. And the general for the Third Corps, General French, decides to open up the road for uh, the Federals when he sees some dismounted Confederate cavalry. So he orders the two closest regiments to order a bayonet charge. Those two regiments just happen to be the United States sharpshooters, so guys who uh, <laughs> can effectively hit someone 500 to 1,000 yards away are going to be conducting their only bayonet charge of the entire Civil War. Fortunately for them, the cavalry will not put that much resistance up. They're going to fall back to the east, which allows the road to be reopened to the Union Third Corps. And they're going to come up and they're going to camp in the Greenwich area between the night of October 13th and October 14th, while the Second Corps will be enclosed in the Auburn area. This is going to cause a very tense night for Stuart and for Lee. Fortunately for those two generals, the Federals are completely blind to what they have. They very well can bag the majority of the Confederate cavalry operating in Virginia. Unfortunately for Federals, they don't know that they have this opportunity. And so when October 14th dawns, the Federal plan is to still march up to Greenwich, back to Bristow Station, and follow the railroad back up to Centerville in Fairfax County. 
And this engraving just shows why the Federals decided to take two different routes uh, with those wagons, with thousands of soldiers marching along the road. You're going to get some 95-esque traffic jams every once in a while. And also along the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, there are certain stretches in which there's actually no roads themselves. And so they're literally going to be marching on the railroad ties or adjacent to it. So that's not going to help the speed of the retreating Federal Army. So this is going to be a long day for the commander of the Second Corps, G.K. Warren. So dawn opens on October 14, 1863. He has absolutely no idea, along with his soldiers, that the Confederate cavalry is encamped just due east of them. And so the, uh, the first division of the Second Corps, under a guy named Caldwell, are encamped on a hill north of what is called Cedar Run. And the other two divisions of the Second Corps are slowly marching northwards to the Auburn area. So Caldwell's division are on that hill making coffee when, lo and behold, Stuart decides to deploy the few artillery pieces that accompanied him on this raid to fire onto the back of these unsuspecting Union soldiers. So very quickly, Caldwell's soldiers realize that there's Confederates over here. They throw their coffee pots away and uh, start to face this general area. And so today, this hill is actually called Coffee Hill. Um, so Stuart is, during the night of October 13th, is able to send some couriers to Warrington to let Lee know of his situation. So Lee realizes that Stuart is in trouble. So he's going to detach a portion of his infantry under Rhodes from uh, Ewell's Corps in early, and they're going to be sent to Auburn, and their goal is to open up the road so that Lee's cavalry can retreat to the main army. So for all intents and purposes, the first half of October 14, 1863 for the Confederates is a rescue mission. They're trying to rescue those Confederate cavalry. They're not trying to hinder or destroy portions of the Federal Army. They're trying to save their cavalry. And so it's going to take some time, unfortunately, for the Confederates to get these infantrymen moving along. And so to try and speed up this process of opening these roads up, Stewart is going to order a brigade of North Carolina cavalrymen to conduct a mounted charge along a road that leads into Auburn to open up the road. Very quickly, though, they're going to be repulsed by New Yorkers, and they're going to fall back. There is an ex-congressman from North Carolina who is mortally wounded up there, and he's going to be captured, and he's going to be brought to D.C., where he's going to be imprisoned at Capitol Prison behind the U.S. Capitol, where he's eventually going to die of his wounds. That guy's roughing. So this cavalry charge goes and fails. The Second Corps of the Union Army of the Potomac is now in mass. When the Confederates fall back, they do a very circular route or way. So this opens up the direct route to the railroad. So the Second Corps' plan was to take this road up to Greenwich, where the Third Corps is encamped, and follow it to Bristow Station. But with now Confederate infantry coming down this area, Warren, the commander of the Second Corps, realizes that escape route is blocked. And so he's going to follow the St. Stephen's Road due east to the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, which means the Second Corps now are going to be left behind for the main Army of the Potomac. For the rest of the day, the Second Corps, for the most part, will be by themselves. And so to give you a sense of what Auburn looked like, this is a watercoloring from a soldier in the 40th New York. This is the tavern. So this is Cedar Run right here. This is the tavern. And this is Coffee Hill. 
And this is the charge from those North Carolina cavalrymen being repulsed by New York infantry. So what's going to happen is Warren's going to retreat to the Orange and Alexandria Railroad at Catlett Station. He's going to stop his corps for a few hours to make sure that everyone's going to be masked before marching up the Orange and Alexandria Railroad to eventually Manassas and then to Centerville. He's not going to be completely by himself because Meade has ordered the 5th Corps to wait in the Milford area, right in this general area, until he sees the head of the 2nd Corps. So at least you have two corps that are mutually supporting distance. And this shows some of the terrain. This is going to be the road the Confederates are going to be taking. There is a pretty large hill that's been developed, but it's still pretty prominent. So you can see most of the area, unfortunately, from this hilltop, because of trees and how the terrain is, you cannot see the railroad from this hill. And that's going to be important later on, on October 14th. So you have the Confederates mainly focusing on the Auburn area, but also realizing that this is really the last chance that the Confederates have of getting between the retreating Union Army and those fortifications at Centerville. Lee decides to use the second half of his army under A.P. Hill to march from the Warrington area along the Greenwich Road to the Bristow Station area to try and get on that railroad. And Hill's going to start early on, on the 14th, He's going to detach a brigade on the Warrington Turnpike to protect that area just in case there's unseen federal force there. And he's going to bring the rest of his corps down the Greenwich Road. Unfortunately, during this march, his corps is going to be strung out. And so they're going to be separated from one another. So the brigades and the division of Hill's corps are going to be somewhat strung out. The first division of Hill's corps is under Harry Heath who opened the Battle of Gettysburg just a few months earlier. And he's going to be using three brigades. And these are going to be the brigade commanders for the Confederates for the Battle of Bristow Station. This guy right here is Henry Walker. He probably has the worst brigade in Lee's army. So after the Battle of Gettysburg, Archer's Tennessee Brigade has been severely bloodied on the first day and the third day of the battle. And so they are consolidated with Brockenborough's Virginia Brigade, which had a very shaky reputation to begin with. So you have very small Tennessee units along with very shaky Virginia units all under the command of Walker. And so the next battle, Heath is going to make sure that these guys have to be operating under close supervision. There's going to be two North Carolina brigades. There's the old Pettigrew Brigade, which fought very violently and bloodily on the first and third days of the Battle of Gettysburg. Pettigrew is wounded on the retreat back to Virginia mortally, and he's going to be replaced by this guy, William Kirkland. And Kirkland's an interesting character. He attended the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. He dropped out before graduation, so he decides to join the United States Marine Corps as an officer. He uh, decides to resign his commission when North Carolina secedes. He joins as the colonel of the 21st North Carolina, is wounded during the 1862 Shenandoah Valley campaigns. During his recovery, he decides to go out to Tennessee, where he's going to serve as the chief of staff for Pat Claiborne during the Battle of Stones River. Recovers, comes back, and is going to be giving Pettigrew's old command. But this is going to be his first battle as brigade commander. And then this guy right here is John Rogers Cook who has a brigade of four North Carolina units that did not see service at Gettysburg. While the rest of Lee's army is up in Pennsylvania, his North Carolina soldiers are stationed in the Richmond area. 
and he also just happens to be the brother-in-law of Jeb Stuart. So the plan is, for the Confederates at least, is coming down the Greenwich Road, one brigade of mix of Mississippians and, and North Carolinians will be held in reserve until the rest of Hill's Corps can arrive on the field, while the other three brigades will be set up. And they have a very unique situation with terrain hampering their mobility and their ability to deploy fully. So they're going to have the two brigades of North Carolina soldiers in front with that mixed Virginia and Alabama and Tennessee brigade in the rear. And the plan is when they start to march, Walker's brigade is going to go to the oblique. And so you'll have at the beginning of the battle a two brigade front eventually being formed into a third brigade front. But when the Confederates are arriving on the Bristow Station area, because of the terrain, they cannot see the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. They cannot see elements of the Second Corps coming up from the south. Instead, they're seeing the Fifth Corps encamped in the Milford area. And these guys are totally unaware that the Confederates are coming. Unlike other officers, the commander of the Fifth Corps is pretty lax. He actually disobeys a direct order from me to picket these roads. And so they have no idea that the Confederates are coming down the area. Hill sees the situation, wants to act immediately, so he's going to order his infantry to start to deploy. But before they're deployed fully, he's going to order a battalion of artillery under William Pogue to be deployed on a hilltop, and they're going to fire into the Fifth Corps. And originally, the, uh, the Confederates are going to be facing to the north along what is now Route 28 north towards Milford. Unfortunately, before they're finished deploying, they're going to be experiencing some skirmish fire on their right flank from some of the elements of the Second Corps. There's going to be three regiments, a regiment from Michigan, New York, and Minnesota, which if you are familiar with the Battle of Gettysburg, the first Minnesota on the second day took about 82% casualties in a few hours. Most regimental history is the first Minnesota stops at the Battle of Gettysburg, but their service continues until 1864. And so this is going to be one of the last battles that they fight in. And so they're going to be deployed along with their sister units in the 59th New York and 7th Michigan on hilltops just to the west of Bristow Station. And they're going to be peppering the, uh, the flank of the Confederates. And so reports are going to now be coming up the chain of command in the Confederate Army that there's an unknown force along the railroad. Hill makes a, uh, a snap decision. He's going to order his forces to change direction from going north to going east. In Hill's mind, he's going to be attacking stragglers and wagons that he's been experiencing for most of October 14th already. So he thinks he's going to be walking into just disorganized federal soldiers. Instead, he's going to be eventually fighting the Union Second Corps. And so what's going to happen is he's going to give the order to wheel. There's going to be some back and forth. Then eventually, it's going to be sent to Wheel. Unfortunately, the uh, division commander, Harry Heath, for whatever reason, is not present on that battle. He makes a very brief after-action report. And in his memoirs, he writes maybe two paragraphs in this battle. So we don't know where Heath is, but he's probably not here because he allows Walker's combined brigade to more or less march off the battle. So Heath's division, which is originally four brigades, one is in reserve, and one marches off, so without firing a shot, the Confederates lose half their strength. To add even more confusion, during this wheel, the Confederates are going to be somewhat disorganized, and so they're not going to be coming on straight on. They're going to be coming on an angle. 
So there's going to be some issues with the Confederate assault, but unlike most histories of the Battle of Bristow Station, Warren's entire Second Corps is not here at the beginning of the battle. There's only two brigades under Alexander Webb's division who are here. Um, and elements are actually already north of Broad Run. They see these Confederates falling towards their, their left and to the rear, and they decide to fall back, and they're going to go onto the railroad and use it as a more or less man-made trench. And so you'll have the Confederates now making a direct assault on an entrenched Federal position, but at the beginning of the battle, the Confederates actually outnumber the Federals. However, the longer the Confederates take to get from this hilltop towards the railroad means more and more Federals will get into the railroad and eventually pour more fire into their flanks. And so the Confederates are able to finally deploy. Again, with an angle, there's going to be some confusion. Cook's brigade of North Carolina units will not get any closer to the railroad track than about 75 yards before falling back. Kirkland's brigade, again, survivors of Gettysburg, they will be able to breach the federal line in a few places. Because there is no federal force on the bridge across the Broad Run area, the 11th North Carolina Infantry Regiment is able to get onto the railroad embankment for a little bit. And because the railroad and the road intersection is level, the unit there, the 42nd New York Manhattan, breaks. And so the 26th North Carolina will be able to get to the railroad for a little bit. Unfortunately for those North Carolinian Tar Heels, they become magnets for any federal fire once they get to the railroad. And so they're at the railroad no more than five minutes before the weight of that lead and that iron forces them back. So this movement, getting to the battlefield, facing to the north, then wheeling, attacking the federal position, and falling back lasts no more than about 45 minutes. And during that 45 minutes, one soldier from the 20th Massachusetts says his unit only fired about six rounds. During those 45 minutes, some Confederate units take 75% casualties. There is a company from Guilford, North Carolina, the Guilford Grays, Company B, 27th North Carolina. They take 75% casualties in that 45-minute charge. The 27th North Carolina as a whole takes about 63% casualties, which proportionally and numbers engaged are just as bloody or, in some cases, bloodier than other Confederate units at the Battle of Gettysburg. So in 45 minutes, they are repulsed. To try and aid the, uh, the assault on the, the railroad, Hill decides he's going to detach a battalion of artillery under uh, Alabamian named McIntosh and put him on a hilltop here. McIntosh does not like that order. He realizes he does not have any designated support for his cannon. He protests that order is given it again, and so he's going to reluctantly deploy about seven cannon on a hilltop, probably no more than a thousand yards from the railroad less than that actually, probably about 800 yards from the railroad. When the Carolinians fall back, they also carry with them the artillerists manning those seven guns. And so the federal soldiers along the railroad now see seven completely abandoned cannon just beckoning to them. And without any orders being given, skirmishers from all the elements of the Second Corps who are there start to go up and they capture five Confederate guns. Two of the Confederate guns have been damaged beyond repair, so they leave them up there, but they're going to bring back five Confederate guns. Later on, a editorial in a Richmond paper says, this is the first time in military history that a retreating army captured cannon from an attacking army. Uh -huh. And to add insult to injury, 
the Federals will also capture two colors from Carolina units. We don't know exactly which units they're from, probably from Kirkland's brigade. By this point, Lee is now amassing his entire army to this area, so about 45,000 Confederate soldiers. Warren's going to be bringing the rest of his corps, so about 10,000 Federal soldiers. So we have 45,000 Confederate soldiers versus 10,000 Union survivors. And so this is one of the few battles now the Confederates outnumber the Federals. Unfortunately for any chance of Confederate victory, that initial assault really pumps the brakes for any desire to attack Warren's position along the railroad. And so Lee is going to take the very conservative approach of allow the rest of his army to approach. They're going to more or less try make an L and hopefully put enough pressure on that they can either destroy or at least push the Second Corps along. Unfortunately for the Confederates, there's some miscommunication within the ranks of uh, a couple divisions, and so this assault really won't be able to get off until dusk. And so there's only a few moments that the, the Confederates are able to use, and they're going to only approach the, the Federal position pretty gingerly, fall back, and allow Knight to overcome the field. And so the Confederate plan now is to regroup on the the night of October 14th, October 15th, 1863, and make a major assault the next day, provided that Warren Corps remains in the area. Warren realizes that he's had probably the best fight he's going to get that day. He lets night fall over the field, and so around midnight, he's going to start slowly evacuating his corps along the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. So, on the morning of October 15, 1863, there's fog, Confederate skirmishers very gingerly start walking down towards the railroad, thinking that there's going to be a strong Federal presence there, and they find that the Federals have left the area that night before. And so during this time period, probably it's the most famous incident of the Bristow Station campaign. This is where General Lee meets General Hill, and they're going to review the battlefield together. There's a couple different accounts. The most famous account has Lee telling Hill, well, well, General, bury these poor men and speak no more of it. That account comes from a former staff member who writes his memoirs after Lee has died. Unfortunately, that staff member during the Bristow Station campaign has been promoted. He's now a battalion commander for an artillery unit in Ewell's Corps. So he's realistically not going to be anywhere near Lee with the Confederates thinking that they're going to make a frontal assault on the railroad. So there are a couple other accounts. Probably the, the most realistic one that we have is from a soldier in the 6th Louisiana Infantry, William Seymour, who in his diary on October 15, 1863, hears this conversation and records it for posterity. He says, Lee meets Hill on the field where Cook's brigade went in, and he sees Hill crestfallen, and Hill tries to immediately apologize to Lee saying, I'm sorry, General, this is my fault, this is my fault. And Captain William Seymour records that Lee roared at Hill, yes, this is your fault. Yesterday, you went in with too few soldiers without too much reconnaissance. And he says that Hill looked very dejected, very depressed, very sad, and Lee rides away. So you have, well, well, General, bury these poor men, or Lee just more or less berating his corps commander. Um, but Hill 
had a, a handicap because he had no cavalry. He could not send a force to properly reconnoiter this area because, again, most of the Confederate cavalry is in the Auburn area or marching back towards Lee and Warrington when he's approaching the Bristow Station area. So Hill is going to be marching pretty blind. And if he had a division commander under Harry Heath who was doing what he was supposed to and not let his division fly off the rails, the Confederates very well could have if not destroyed the Second Corps, at least bloodied them pretty severely. Unfortunately for the Confederates, that's not going to happen. And so the Battle of Bristow Station will produce 1,500 Confederate casualties compared to 500 Federal casualties. This is one of the few images that we have of the Battle of Bristow Station. These are New York soldiers who are running to the railroad right here to reinforce the Federal position. You can see in this engraving, right now it's actually only being positioned by a loose line of skirmishers. And if you notice, if you go to the battlefield park today, the embankment's up about an additional 20 or 30 feet than it would be in the Civil War. So during the Civil War time period, it's very slight, if that at all. So probably only about 5 feet rather than the, excuse me, about the 15 to 20 feet that's there today. Most of those 500 casualties for the Federals are during this time period when they're running from that open hilltop towards the railroad. Once they get to the railroad, they're more or less protected. So Lee now has to make a decision. After the Battle of Bristow Station, his last best attempt to produce a Confederate victory slipped out of his grasp. Meade's entire army are now in the fortifications at Centerville, and so Lee needs to make a decision. He can assault those forts, potentially drive the Federals away. Unfortunately, if he drives the Federals away, all that's going to happen is they're going to be driven to the Washington, D.C. forts. So he decides fighting in Centerville is just not going to happen. And so the second option is potentially to remain in Northern Virginia, to shift the war from Central Virginia to Northern Virginia. Unfortunately for the Confederates, when the Federals are retreating on the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, they decide to burn the railroad bridge at Rappahannock Station, which is modern Remington, which means that all the supplies for Lee's army will have to stop at Remington, be crossed on a pontoon bridge, and brought on a uh, wagon train up to his army about 20, 30 miles north, which means it's going to prevent his army from being pretty well supplied. So the other option would be to live off the land. Unfortunately for the Confederates, by 1863 with those Confederates and then later Federal soldiers marching through the area, Prince William County is described by many Confederate soldiers as a complete desert. Fields have been abandoned, fences are down, there's no corn being grown, there's no wheat being grown. The Confederate Army cannot live off the land in Northern Virginia, so Lee has to make the decision to retreat back down towards the Culpeper area. And what he's trying to do is he's going to try and destroy as much railroad as possible between Bristow Station and Rappahannock Station with the hope that it's going to take the Federal Army the rest of 1863 to repair that line. So Lee is hoping that he's going to more or less create a few months of, of breathing space and hopefully the campaign season for 1863 will end with the Confederates in the Culpeper area. So this is actually an image that a photographer makes of that Confederate damage of the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. Bristow Station is just behind the photographer and this is looking south along the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. Again, Lee thinks this is going to take the rest of 1863 for the Federals to repair. The Federal Army will be able to repair this in about three weeks. So by the end of October, Meade's Army is down by the Rappahannock Station area. And so while the majority of his army is destroying that railroad, 
Lee's going to try and, and prevent the Federals from accosting them, so he's going to order his cavalry under Jeb Stuart to the west of the area along the Warrington Turnpike to try and prevent the Federals from getting down towards the railroad. And there's going to be that last battle of the Bristow Station campaign at the Battle of Buckland. And this is a wartime drawing of the battlefield. This is a mill that still stands today. This is Broad Run, that same river that Warren had across on October 14th. And so this is going to be known as the Battle of Buckland Mills, or also known as the Buckland Races. So what's going to happen is along 29, the Warrington Turnpike, Meade is going to order a division of Federal Cavalry under Judson Kilpatrick, called Kill Cavalry, to open up the way. And he gets down to Buckland, where he's going to face some dismounted Confederate cavalrymen under Jeb Stuart in the buildings of Buckland. And so there's going to be uh, some fighting. Armstrong Custard's Michigan Brigade will be sent. Elements will be dismounted, and they'll put their Spencer carbines to use. They'll eventually be able to drive the Confederates away from Buckland, opening up the road. And Kilpatrick wants to take advantage of this, and he orders his division to completely march down the road. Because the fight at Buckland Mills is taking longer than expected, and his Michigan soldiers have not had breakfast, Custer decides to refuse to follow that order until his guys have breakfast. And so Kilpatrick's division is going to be split. Davies' brigade will be down uh, to the new Baltimore area, while Custer's brigade will be in Buckland. So Davies' brigade will get down to where there's more or less a commuter lot on 29, where the intersection of 29 and Fauquier Drive. That's when Stewart's finally going to order his soldiers to stop retreating into counterattack. And so it's going to stop Davies. And while this is happening, Davies has the unfortunate circumstance to hear firing into his rear, because while Davies is following Stewart down towards his new Baltimore area, Stewart's going to detach a couple of his units. They're going to go down to the Auburn area, which they were in a few days before, and they're going to take a very circular route to Buckland. So they're trying to get between the federal retreat and the federal soldiers at New Baltimore. Fortunately for the federals, Custer's decision to let his soldiers have breakfast means that there is a federal brigade at that river crossing. And so they're going to try and buy as much time as possible for Davies to retreat back towards the Broad Run River crossing and back to the main Union Army, which is now around the Gainesville area. Custer tries to delay this battle as much as possible, but unfortunately for the Union Cavalry, Fitz Lee is able to eventually drive Custer north of Broad Run, which means the, the brigade of cavalry under Davies is now cut off. And so they're more or less going to be sent every man for himself on a very circular route to the Union Army. During this battle, Custer will lose his personal baggage train. And so one of his old army friends, Fitz Lee, captures it, finds these love letters to Custer's now, I believe, wife, and decides to publish those in the Virginia papers. And so Custer's uh, love letters are now going to be made public. And so um, when Custer is able to uh, see Fitz Lee later on in 1864, it's a little bit more personal now. <laughs> This is going to be the last battle of the Bristow Station Campaign. So after this battle, the Buckland races, Stuart is going to finally withdraw 
back to the Rappahannock River, and he's going to fall back south of that river. Again, Lee thinks that he's bought himself a few months of time, so he's going to make the fateful decision to keep two brigades north of the Rappahannock River at Rappahannock Station as a bridgehead, as a jumping off point for later campaigns, which he thinks are going to happen in 1864. Unfortunately for Lee, the Army of the Potomac gets to Remington, or Rappahannock Station, by early November, and so on November 7th, 1863, at the Battle of Rappahannock Station, Lee loses more or less two brigades. The vast majority of them are captured. And so this is not a good showing for Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. At the Battle of Bristow Station, those two North Carolina brigades are severely bloodied. And at the Battle of Rappahannock Station, he more or less loses an additional two brigades to, to capture. And so they have to figure out who's to blame. And so there are newspaper editorials in the Richmond papers saying who's to blame. And instead of A.P. Hill, which most historians blame today, they decide the true culprit are the North Carolinians. And so they go after the old Pettigrew Brigade under Kirkland and Cook's Brigade saying those are the reasons why the Battle of Bristow Station ended in a Confederate defeat. Not the generalship, the performance of the Confederate soldiers themselves, which does not really sit well with those Carolinians who've lost a lot of friends. And so later on, they say that if those soldiers had been Virginia soldiers and the generals had been North Carolinians, the Virginia papers would be going after the generalship. But unfortunately for them, the generals are Virginians. And later on, after this campaign has ended with the Confederate Army back south of the Rappahannock Station, McIntosh, the guy who lost five guns, writes in his diary a circular that's going around the Army of Northern Virginia saying, we've mourned, we've lost, but we've never blushed before. This is the first time that Lee's Army of Northern Virginia really has been bloodied, but not only bloodied, but defeated with absolutely no chance of trying to find the silver lining. At Antietam, they're defeated, but they can say they've shifted the war up to Maryland for a few months. They're defeated at Gettysburg, but they've been able to shift the war up to Maryland and Pennsylvania for a few months. Bristow Station, they're defeated. They're able to shift the war up to Northern Virginia for a couple of days. So for the Confederate soldiers, this is a very low point. Fortunately for them, the war is going to shift. There's going to be one last campaign in 1863, Mine Run. And so the Confederates are going to forget about this campaign pretty quickly. And the Federals really are going to forget it unless you are a part of the Second Corps. But after the war, there's going to be a little bit of controversy because the guy commanding the Second Corps at Bristow Station, G.K. Warren, is under a cloud. And so the Second Corps soldiers, even though in their regimental histories, they will devote maybe a chapter to Bristow Station, they won't come back to the area to raise monuments to their actions just because this is not something they don't want to highlight. This is not a battle in which Winfield Scott Hancock was in charge. You have Warren. And so the Second Corps will allow this battle to eventually go away as well, which means the Battle of Bristow Station campaign itself becomes a footnote, which is unfortunate uh, because if Lee's army is able to score at least a slight victory, that might change how the war is going to be conducted in Tennessee. So those reinforcements that are going to Chattanooga under U.S. Grant, which will eventually drive the Army of Tennessee from the heights of Missionary Ridge, might be going to Virginia instead. Or the Union war effort might just take a pause for a little bit, which might allow just enough voters to switch their votes to the Peace Democrats 
voting for the governors of New York and Ohio. But as it happens, this kind of buoys the Union war effort up north and eventually really gets buoyed for the Battle of Missionary Ridge and the rout of the Army of the Tennessee in Georgia in November of 1863. So this battle was not foreordained to be a Confederate defeat. This very well could have been a federal defeat. And so these are some engravings of the Battle of Buckland Mill. And so this is the battlefield today. The park that I work at is this section in blue. So originally, we were about 130 acres. We've grown a little bit. So now we're about 143. But you can see with this map, Bristow Station Battlefield Heritage Park, it's, it's a mouthful, only encompasses about a quarter of the battlefield. It's very important that it has where Cook's Brigade fought over, so some of the most bloodiest land for the Battle of Bristow Station, but Kirkland's Brigade's area is, fortunately for us, undeveloped, but it's also unprotected. And the entire federal position, the artillery and, and the routes going down to the railroad itself, are also up for development. Last year, the park and the county did a preservation study looking at different ways to preserve the battlefield, either inclusion to the battlefield park or buying easement or other techniques. But for right now, the Battle of Bristow Station is only interpreted and preserved in about a quarter of that field. And after the war, the federal soldiers who die are eventually brought up to Arlington National Cemetery. And so all the federals who are buried there, either as a result of the Battle of Kettle Run in 1862 or the Battle of 1863, are in that mass grave behind Arlington House at Arlington National Cemetery. The Confederates are still there. Uh, so we've been able to identify one cemetery for the 10th Alabama Cemetery from 1861, but the North Carolinians who die in 1863 are still unknown where they're buried. There's an account that says most of the graves are by the artillery position right here because they were buried by the dead horses. So we have a general idea of where the Carolinians might be buried, but for all intents and purposes, for the Confederates, we have no idea where they're buried. So we like to treat the entire battlefield as a cemetery just because we don't know where those soldiers are buried. And that's only Cook's Brigade. Again, Kirkland's Brigade, where they fight and where those soldiers are buried, is still potentially threatened for development. So thank you for coming out tonight, for learning a little bit about the Battle of Bristow Station and the campaign that it served a linchpin for. And so I'll open the floor to questions if you have any. Yes? Back on your exhibit, the Battle of Auburn, you depict Longwood Farm, and that's my family's home place. Many of them went off to war. Some of them went off to Texas to continue farming. But do you have records of any actions that took place on that property? Because they owned all the way to Auburn. They provided railroad ties to Orange and Alexandria. And I know there's a documented, there's documented Confederates wounded were taken there during the battle and died and is, is a recognized ghost that still haunts the house down there. But I'm just curious, we have no records of any actions or anything that took place on their property in, in any of your research if you come across anything. No. For the Federals, they're focusing mainly on the, the afternoon fight at Bristow Station. Uh, and for the Confederates, for the entire campaign, there's just f very few primary accounts. If you've mentioned this already, uh, I apologize. But remember, the 5th Corps was, I guess, close enough to the 2nd Corps to uh, provide support. Initially, I guess, uh, Hill's forces were deployed against um, and did they have any role they provide support to the railroad lines? That's a good question. So the 5th Corps is at Milford. They're supposed to be support for the 2nd Corps until he sees the head of the 2nd Corps coming up. And so the Corps commander for the 5th Corps, a general named Sykes, does not like being 
in the wind. And so he starts sending messages to Warren saying, hurry up, you gotta hurry up. Warren knows he's in a tight space, so he doesn't need these messages being, being sent. And so he sees Sykes, commander of the fifth corps, sees a courier from Warren's staff coming up to, to send a message to him. And in his mind, that's the head of the second corps. And so he starts to pull back right when the artillery for Polk's battalion starts to be deployed. And to add insult to injury, when he's deploying, Sykes sends a message to Warren saying, if Lee's army is in our front, two corps are better than one. And so a staff member for Warren says after he received that message, Warren said some pretty strong Anglo-Saxon words. Uh -huh. So for all intents and purposes, Warren is going to be abandoned by the Fifth Corps. At the end of the battle, around dusk, elements of the Fifth Corps will be coming down the railroad towards Bristow Station. Um, and so after the campaign, there are reports of the Fifth Corps taking part very prominently in the Battle of Bristow Station, saving Warren, which the soldiers in the Second Corps really don't take kindly to. But it's ironic that later on, that General Sykes loses his command during the, the reshuffling of the Army of the Potomac in 1864, and the person who gets his command is Warren. So the guy who was fighting at Bristow Station without the Fifth Corps in 1864 will get the command of the Fifth Corps. Why is there any evidence about where the barriers were? Were there not any houses over there where people observed the battle and you know, made accounts after the war about bodies being buried? So immediately after the battle, during the, the end of the campaign, federal soldiers who are in the area become tourists and they go through the area. One soldier finds taxes from the 1760s scattered in the battlefield, but they're also noting where the cemeteries are at. Uh, but after the war, the only record that we have of any cemeteries is actually a veteran group from the 10th Alabama coming up from Alabama in the 1880s because they would like to buy the 10th Alabama Cemetery and put a, a monument up. When they go up to the Bristow Station area, they realize that the, the farm that their comrades are buried on are actually owned by a Union veteran. And when they start talking to the daughter, the daughter says, as long as the family retains ownership of that farm, they'll take care of that cemetery. And so with that, they decide that's a good enough pledge. So they uh, forego their plans to buy the cemetery and also put up a monument. Uh, but that's the only account that we have of Confederate cemeteries after the war. I've kind of lost track of what Meade's strategy was at this point. I mean, this is months after Gettysburg. Grant hasn't come east. And... His, his plan is not mess up, not to get brought across the Joint Congressional <laughs> um, Committee uh, like he was after Gettysburg. So he's, I think, realizing that if he messes up again, he could lose his command. So he's going to be playing it very conservatively for the rest of 1863. He's finally goaded into the Mine Run campaign in November of 1863. Uh, but for him, he's more or less just willing to let his army just recover from Gettysburg and, and go after it again in 1864. Lincoln was willing to let him do it? No, no, no. Lincoln was trying to push him as much as possible, but Meade was trying to, I guess, ignore those requests. Yeah, in your book, you indicate that Meade's first choice was not to wander around North Central Virginia, but to use Fredericksburg as a base of to the rest, which essentially is a geographic sense, the same branch strategy. And Lincoln and Halleck rejected that because they wanted to Given that there wasn't a unified command, and given that to reject the Overland campaign earlier, 
And given that we did not have uniform command, including you and Shenandoah or the Army of James, what else could we have done? Well, he wanted to change his base of supplies to Fredericksburg with a waterborne supply along, along the uh, Potomac River. But Lincoln and Halleck more or less said, Lee's army's not in the Fredericksburg area. They're in the, the Culpeper, Madison area, which is directly down the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. So Meade was pretty much hamstrung of what he could do by the Lincoln, and, and the Lincoln administration in Halleck. If Meade, being hypothetical, if Meade concentrated the federal army at Fredericksburg in order to defend Richmond, Meade would have had to Probably, yeah. What about Heath? Do you think his dilatory action here might have been something to do with his Gettysburg experience because he didn't operate, he didn't function? No, no, he doesn't do well at Gettysburg. He doesn't do well here. Harry Heath is said to be the only general in Lee's army in which Lee would refer to him by his first name. So it seems that personal relationship really is helping Heath because any other divisional commander really should not have a command after performances at Gettysburg and, and Bristow this poorly. But Heath will retain command of his division uh, for the Overland Campaign. And again, after this battle, trying to make, because Heath already realizes that Hill's getting the majority of the blame, so he's trying to lay low. And so he makes the very bare bones report. And then during his memoirs, he covers the battle in maybe two paragraphs. So he realizes Hill's getting most of the blame. Do not step in that battle. <laughs> and just let Hill take it all. Thank you. Thank you. Bill, on behalf of all of us, this is a book by one of our members, actually, uh, John Michael, who's done images of photographic history of Fort McNair, and he did Fort Myers. So we thought it would be a very appropriate gift oh, to you. Oh, thank you. And we're kind of proud we've been here at Fort McNair since 1971, 10 months a year, second Tuesday night of the month. So. As a memento, here's Thank the you. photographic history of Fort McNair. I appreciate and it. And Bill has books there. The name of the book is A Want of Vigilance. Yeah, so it's A Want of Vigilance, which I believe Davis writes uh, after the battle to more or less summarize the campaign. There was a want of vigilance for this entire battle. Um, and also there is a new blue and gray article on the Potomac blockade, which was in early 1862 and late 1861. Prince William County just acquired about 130 acres of Cockpit Point, a Confederate blockade area. So there is a, uh, a magazine article there as well about a, a Civil War time period that's very rarely remembered today. Thank you. Thank you.